So we're going to be in Titus chapter 2 this morning. <coughs> Titus 2, 11 through 15. Titus 2, 11 through 15. We'll read that in just a moment. But a few weeks ago, I was down in Raleigh with my family for the weekend at the state fair. And um, we were walking through, getting ready to walk into the gates. And, uh, you know, just, uh, I think there was, uh, let's see, there's seven of us, two mom and dad. So there's nine of us going through the gate. And it was a pretty good little crowd, you know, we're excited. We're having a good time, and uh, I had little Caleb on my shoulders. We were walking along, and I happened to look down, probably because his, you know, his body's kind of pressing my, my neck downward, and I'm looking down as we're walking, and I stumble across something that I've never, ever seen before in my life, at least a real one. I found a real golden ticket. You didn't ooh and awe. Okay. I was excited. <laughs> so, thank you. So, I found this real shiny, authentic golden ticket. So, I felt like Charlie Bucket off of the Willy Wonka movie, you know, when he opens the wrapper with his last little coin and he finds this golden ticket and it changes his life. I thought, man, my life is about to change. Now, I had no idea what this ticket was going to get me into, I had no idea how much monetary value. Even if I wanted to go find Slugworth and sell the ticket to him, the bad guy from the movie, I couldn't find him. I don't know where he is. So anyway, I had no idea what to do with this ticket, but I was really excited. Now, had I not had a two and a half year old on my shoulders, I would have bent down and picked it up and stuck it in my pocket and just, you know, hoped that maybe one day I could redeem it for something. But I just kept on walking because we're trying to get into the fair. But I was thinking about that golden ticket in relation to one of the key questions that I want to address in this gospel sermon series, and it's how we tend to view the gospel. So I would say, I would submit that most of us tend to treat our understanding of the gospel like that golden ticket from the movie, okay, or like the one that I saw on the ground. Just like Grandpa Joe and Charlie Bucket, uh, I did have to look up Charlie's last name. I remembered Charlie, but I couldn't remember Bucket. But anyway, just like Grandpa Joe and Charlie Bucket treated that golden ticket, that was their entrance into Willy Wonka's kingdom. That was what got them into the gate. I would say that many of us tend to view the gospel like our golden ticket. Only. We forget that there are many, many, many other things that the gospel does in our life before we ever get to that point where we trade in, so to speak, a golden ticket to get into the gates, the kingdom of heaven. Okay, So I am going to go on record as officially saying the gospel is the only golden ticket to get you into the gates of heaven. There's no other way you get in except for the gospel of Jesus Christ, which we're going to talk about this morning. However, it is much more than just our golden ticket to gain us entrance into the kingdom of God because the gospel of grace has a work to do in your life today. Okay, so I'm, let me say that again. The gospel of grace has a work to do in your life this day, today, tomorrow, and the next day. So the key question, I've sort of already answered it, but we're going to go in a little more depth. Why is the gospel more than just a ticket to heaven? So if you're taking notes, why is the gospel more than just a ticket to heaven? Okay, so let's read Titus 2, 11 through 15. The Apostle Paul is writing to Titus, who is pastoring on the very difficult island of Crete. And he writes this near the middle of the uh, book, the epistle. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness or to renounce godlessness, 
and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope. The appearing, second time that word showed up, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. And then Paul wraps it up by saying to Titus, proclaim these things, encourage and rebuke with all authority, not your own authority, he's saying, but with all authority, this authority comes from God, let no one disregard you. So Paul makes a statement at the very beginning of verse 11 that should really leave us asking some big questions and kind of with our jaw sort of hanging open because it is an utterly uh, amazing statement that he makes in verse 11 that grace has appeared. And everything after verse 11 hangs on this one statement. Everything. And so first of all, we need to identify this thing called grace because God says this grace has appeared to us. So when we talk about grace, I don't know if you like to watch figure skating. I, for one, particularly do not. Okay, But if, if I happen to turn the TV on and it's on NBC while they're covering the Olympics, they always talk about the grace of the person's routine. It's kind of an adjective. It's kind of a concept. And they say, oh, they're so graceful. Or they did that gracefully. Or look at their grace. And it describes something. It's a concept. It's an adjective. It's not usually used as a noun. But here's the thing. Paul tells us that the grace of God has done something. Okay? So in order to do something, you have to be something. You're a person, place, or thing, which makes you a noun. Very good. All right. Few of you remember that from grammar school, okay? So, like the noun does something. The noun, the grace of God, has appeared. So, we're moving out of the conceptual into like something tangible has done something, and grace has now appeared. So, we're not describing a woman doing a figure skating routine and telling how wonderfully she pulled off that triple deke or that triple axle or whatever you know you hear on TV as I'm changing the channel as rapidly as I can. <laughs> We're moving away from a concept into grace that has done something, an action. It is now, uh, is now, now done a, a verb, so to speak. So we need to identify this thing called grace. Does anybody remember the movie E.T.? Anybody remember that movie? Lots of people, okay? I, I was shocked. I looked up the movie because I thought it would say 1988, 1989, because that's when I first watched E.T., I was actually negative one years old when E.T. came out. E.T. came out in 1982. I was like, wow, man. And that movie changed, from what I understand, uh, how, how movies were made and how movies were watched. And I mean, it was just an unbelievable movie. If you're not familiar with the movie E.T., basically what happens is this UFO lands in the woods and this crazy little, crazy looking little thing comes out of this UFO, and the UFO is supposed to like leave and go back to wherever it's from. And this crazy looking little thing like meanders through the woods and, and finds this kid in a cornfield. And the kid's name's Elliot, and they're like having this crazy moment. Turns the rest of the town upside down. Everything turns on its head over this crazy little guy that comes from outer space that appeared in their world. And so they're trying to figure out what is this thing, and why is it here, and what do we do with it? Okay, I just gave you essentially what I'm going to talk about this morning. Not E.T., but grace. What is this thing? Why is it here? And what do we do with it? That is essentially what Paul is saying 
We need to identify grace because it's appeared in our world. And we need to understand what it is so that we can understand what grace actually does. See, we sing about grace. You know, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. We sing all about it. But when we actually get down to what uh, Granny used to call the nitty-gritty, we don't understand how grace puts on boots and walks its way out into our lives. We just we love the idea. It sounds beautiful. We kind of know it when we see it, when somebody shows grace. But we don't quite understand what grace does in our lives. And so this morning, we're going to identify what it is and then talk about what it does. Let me give you this definition from Donald Barnhouse. Wonderful, simple definition I picked up in uh, a book, I think, by Chuck Swindoll. He says, Barnhouse says, love that goes upward is worship. Okay? Love that goes upward is worship. Love that goes outward is affection. Love that stoops down is grace. Let me read again. Love that goes upward is worship. Love that goes outward is affection. Love that stoops down. That's an intentional word. Love that stoops down is is grace. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. But this word appeared that we see in verse 11 is also important. The word appeared means to bring something to light, to be seen in a way that previously was not. Okay, So when we say grace has now appeared, we're not just saying it just showed up. Like, you know, maybe you walked in the door this morning, you're like, I just showed up here. I rolled in on two wheels, and I just showed up. That's not what happened. This is a very intentional plan, a deliberate action of God for grace to appear in our world. And so when Jesus appeared in our world, what it's saying is that God was made manifest in a unique way that this world had never seen before. God was made manifest in the flesh in a way that this world had never seen before. So Paul establishes that fact. Grace, not a concept now is culminating in a person. This person has appeared in our world, and because that has happened, everything after that changes. So I'm going to give you five things that grace does, and you're lucky. The first one is very brief. I think most of us will agree on it. Number one is this. God's grace brings salvation. Amen? Okay, so I think we all probably agree that grace is what saves. Remember, faith doesn't save. You can have faith in your own goodness. You can have faith in granddad's standing in the church 80 years ago. Are those things going to save you? Faith does not save. It's only the object which your faith is in. It is grace that saves. Grace is what motivates uh, God to save us. His love motivates him for grace to appear. But see, here's what happens. We stop at point one. Many of us stop at amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me. And that is true, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says we're saved by grace, through faith in Jesus. Grace stooped down in the incarnation of Christ and brought salvation for who? The Bible says in verse 11, all people. Does that mean all people will be saved? No, it does not. The sense in this verse is salvation has been made available through Jesus' atonement. Salvation has been made available for all who will repent and believe the gospel. Not everyone will be saved. That's universalism. That's not the gospel. So understand, when you believe the gospel, there is an exclusive element about the gospel that we have to understand and agree with. It is not all-inclusive, okay? 
we can't just say you believe this earnestly, so we're lumping you in with God's salvation. It's not that. It's only the blood of Christ that saves a person. But grace does not stop there. Second, the Bible teaches, grace teaches us what to say no to and what to say yes to. Grace teaches us. Grace becomes our teacher, our instructor, our trainer. So when you're little, you don't know what you don't know. Right? Let me say that again. Clearing the cobwebs out Sunday morning. I get it. Okay, maybe you only had a half a cup of coffee. I had two. I'm good this morning. When, when you're little, you don't know all the things that you don't know. Right? You think you know Everything. And the older you get, you find out, man, I know nothing, okay? When we're little, we don't know what we don't know. So going up to the iron cord while mommy or daddy is ironing their shirt and pulling on the hot iron, that sounds like a fun idea, doesn't it? Hey, they do this to ring the bell, right? So we're going to try this too. That's not going to work. It is going to ring your bell. (laughs) Playing in the road. Sounds like fun. Lots of fun to play in the road. Let's go dodge the cars. Bad idea. Okay, every child in here, I'm telling you, Bad idea. Or how about this one? Eating all of your Halloween candy in one swipe and not brushing your teeth for a week. Good idea or bad idea? But when you're seven, you think that's the greatest idea in the world. That way I'll always have this taste with me in my mouth for seven days. Okay? Bad idea. We don't know what we don't know. And listen, you don't know what you should know. Right? There are things you should know that you don't know. So you need to be taught. You need to be taught. The same thing goes when we come to Christ. When we come to Christ, we are not fully grown, fully mature disciples of Jesus Christ who are uh, exactly what God intends us to be. When we come to Christ, we're just like they come out of the fourth or fifth floor uh, on on the hospital wing in, in, in Mission, right, in Asheville. We're spiritual babies. We know how to do nothing for ourselves, and we need to be taught and instructed how to live. So the grace of God, it schools us. There's a negative aspect, and there's a positive aspect. There's two sides to the schooling that grace gives. First, what do we say no to? Look at verse 12. Look very carefully. Verse 12. The grace of God instructs us or teaches us to do what? Renounce or Deny godlessness and worldly lusts. Now, the, the Greek word for lust is not what you think it means in English, okay? We categorize it in one way, only sexual or sensual lust. The word lust in the Greek is epithumia. Thumia meaning desire, epi meaning like an over-desire, okay? So it's not just a desire for something like, I might desire sundrop. Like, I love Sundrop. I might desire Sundrop, but if I have like a lust, I can actually lust after Sundrop. You say, that's ridiculous. Biblically, you can. I can desire it so strongly that it begins to, it's a violent desire is what it means. It's a violent desire that it begins to rule over you, and so I stop feeding my kids so that I can go down and get Sundrop at the store. You say, that's ludicrous, right? We do it all the time. Not me. (laughs) Not me. We. We. Not me. Not me. We. We do it all the time. We, you, you, all of us are prone to certain and particular temptations that war against your mind. They war against your heart. They war maybe against your flesh, against your time, against your resources. They call after you. They pull you in. They wrap their claws, their talons around you, and they hold on. 
All of us are prone to different things. Many, many, many different things. But they're all the same thing. It's a lust. It's an insatiable desire to have to have more of that thing. And I'll put all the other good things on hold for that thing. And it begins to rule over us. So what does grace teach us to do? What does verse 12 say? To deny. I think a better word is renounce. I think the ESV has the word renounce. Now renounce is not a calm word. Renounce is not a tame word. It is a severe word. It's almost an angry word. It's the same word that we see. uh, The the word deny is actually a good word. When we see uh, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him do what? Deny. It's renounce. It It is putting something to death. Something that once was precious to you, you put it to death. And you do away with it. That's what the word renounce means. And this is where many of us go wrong in our fight with sin. Many of us go wrong in our fight with sin, whatever your particular struggle is, because we have this one little pet sin that we sort of compartmentalize from the rest of life. We justify it, and we rationalize it, and we take care of it, and we feed it, and we try to keep it perhaps a secret from other people and from God. It can be any number of things. We are called to renounce it, but many of us do one of two things. One, we fail to work out our salvation with fear and trembling by actively putting it to death. Actively putting it to death. You're not going to passively put your sin to death, right? I don't passively put my kids to bed in the evening. <laughs> it is an activity, and it requires all of me, and it takes lots of time. Okay, that's a bad comparison, but what I'm saying is like things aren't just going to happen in your life spiritually by accident. Listen, you're not going to drift towards holiness. You know where you're going to drift towards? Worldliness, godlessness, lusts after the flesh even after you're saved because that old man, new man, that battle is coming after you and calling like an article I read this morning, knocking at your door and we crack it open just a little bit because we're not renouncing it. And the door cracks open just a little bit and we, yeah, how you doing? I hadn't seen you in a while. Hey, listen, just let me in one time and I'll never come back again, the article said. Mm. So we fail to put it to death. John Owen, the Puritan pastor, said this. Either be killing sin or it will be killing you. Like, There's no two ways about this. If you're not saved, sin is the thing that is master over you and you are heading to an eternity separated from Christ. If you are saved, this is the thing that wants to make you as absolutely damnably miserable as you possibly can be on your way to heaven. It wants to tell you all kinds of things about your salvation. It wants to absolutely accuse you. It wants to rule over you and be master of your life. It's not a pet that you can keep in a cage and say, I'll feed it once or twice a day, but I'm in control of it. You know who winds up in the cage? The second thing we try to do is this. Rigorously slay it in our own strength. Fight against sin in our flesh. On our own. And you know what the devil says? Here, let me give you a sword to 
hey, go at it. Here's some armor. You're good at this. You can do this. Go, 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 go. And we find the battle impossibly uphill. And you know what? We either don't survive that battle or we go home with our tail tucked between our legs, weary, worn out, broken, beat down, suffering the loss of relationships, suffering the loss of credibility, suffering the loss of reputation because sin has destroyed us. It is nothing to treat lightly. It's nothing to repent of one time at VBS when you're seven and then think, oh, I'm master over that thing. Now I'm good. It's something to be repented over. This is where grace meets us in the battle. If you miss everything else, and if I stop here, don't miss this point. This might be the high point of the sermon right here in terms of what I have in front of me. This is where grace meets us in the battle. As Hubbard says, listen to what Scott Hubbard says. Listen, listen. The no of self-control becomes possible only as the yes of holiness becomes beautiful. I wish I had that on the screen for you to read so you could visually see it. Listen again. The no of self-control becomes possible only as the yes of holiness becomes beautiful to us. Growing in grace makes holiness become beautiful and desirable. Not off-putting or frustrating or some kind of laborious taskmaster. As we grow in the grace of God in many different ways, it reorients our desires. It's just like going on a diet. It's just like going on a diet. Okay, If you cut out, like let's say I cut out Sundrop. I've done this like twice. Okay. If I cut out Sundrop for two weeks or a month, I start drinking a little more water, I inevitably say to my wife, man, this water's really good. (laughs) Who would have known? It's really good. And then I go back to drinking the sun drop. You know what's happened? This funny little thing with these taste buds on my tongue. I put it in my mouth and I'm like, oh, how does anybody drink this? You know? It's because my desires changed. My taste buds changed. It doesn't taste as good to me anymore. And that's what happens with grace. How do you conquer sin? You immerse yourself in the gospel. You drink grace. You eat mercy for breakfast. You take it in and you lose yourself in the gospel. And instead of trying to fight sin on your own, you just focus your mind on the goodness of Jesus. And what happens when you do that is your desires are reoriented. And so instead of the needle pointing over here, it begins to point true north towards Christ. Grace teaches us to say yes as well as say no. Paul uses three words in verse 12. Grace teaches us to say yes or how to live in a sensible, righteous, godly way. I'm going to be brief on this one, but sensible or self-controlled, righteous or upright and godly way. Watch this. Self-control is our relationship to ourself. It's our relationship to us. Upright is our relationship to others. That we live uprightly among one another. And godly is our relationship to God. There's three directions. Here, there, and there. That grace teaches us to say yes to. So grace takes us into the classroom. And teaches us what to say yes to. What to say no to. Third. Grace redeems us from all lawlessness. Now you'll notice I'm skipping over verse 13. Don't panic. I'm coming back. Go to verse 14. 
It says he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession. The scripture is clear. Not a person living can perfectly keep God's law. We are all lawbreakers. All of us. Lawless. All of us not meeting God's perfect, holy, righteous standards. So where does that leave us? Guilty. There is no plea bargain in the courtroom with God. There is no getting off for a reduced sentence, folks. We are all guilty. We're all guilty. And we're waiting for judgment to fall on our heads. But, verse 14 says, Jesus' self-sacrifice did something for you. What did it do? Redeemed you. Redeemed you. From what? From violating his law. You say, what does the word redeem mean? Watch this. The word redeem means to liberate, to set free, but also it means to release for a ransom price. That's a key part of the gospel. That's a key part of the gospel. Who got set free? Not Jesus, us. Who paid the price with his body and blood so that we could be set free? Jesus did. His blood sacrifice, the Bible calls the propitiation. When I first heard that word, first time ever in college, I was like, what in the world? His blood sacrifice was the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice that satisfied God's holy, righteous, just anger. And God's angry? Yes, sir. He would not be God if he was not angry at sin. God's wrathful? Nobody's ever told me about that. Nobody ever did a VBS on the wrath of God for four straight days. I think sometimes we're a little bit afraid to actually put the front page news on the front page news when it comes to God and his gospel. But you know what? He's a big God. He can handle it. God's justice would be trampled in the dirt if he turned his head. Listen, somebody had to pay for it. Somebody had to pay for it. And that's what Paul is saying to Titus. Don't forget now, we're not talking to you and I here. Paul's talking to Titus. Titus is a pastor in a rough place. These roughneck Cretans, they're brutes, okay? <laughs> These roughneck Cretans, Titus has got a tough pastoring assignment. And Paul is saying to Titus, now listen, you tell them these things, you proclaim these things. Don't just toss it out there and say, okay, now let's everybody talk about what it means to us. No, he does not use that language. He says proclaim them. Preach it. Herald it. Tell it. Jesus paid it all. His sacrifice infinitely satisfied the wrath of God. Isaiah 53. We've all heard this a ton of times, even in a popular song years ago. But he was pierced because of whose rebellion? Ours. That's our lawlessness. He was pierced because of our rebellion. He was crushed because of our iniquities. His pun or our, the punishment for our peace was on him and we're healed by his wounds. Do you hear the transfer? I, 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 think, I feel like I do this every single week. If there's, just watch my hands and you can get the gospel right there. Like he trades places with us. That's the gospel. You don't work your way up to him. He came down and did what you couldn't do so that he could swap places with you and, tra and trade places 
and set you free and take the guilty sentence. Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus even came to earth, is explaining the atonement, the swapping of your sin, my sin, and His grace. That's the Old Testament description of the New Testament atonement. God is stooping down, taking our place in Christ, so that like Romans 8, 4 says, the righteous requirement of the law. Now remember, you're a lawbreaker, I'm a lawbreaker. But when Jesus trades places with us and we repent, the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in you. You know what that means? You don't have a scarlet letter hanging anywhere around you anymore over anything you've done. Nothing. You're free. You're ransomed. You're redeemed. You belong as a child of the king. You've been adopted. And you live in his home. Number four. Grace purifies a people that belong to him. Now, I've gotten pretty excited, but I'm pretty excited about this, and I'm not going to lie. Grace purifies. Look at verse 14. I want you to see it for yourself. After he redeemed us, it says to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession. Now, this word purify and cleanse has an awesome, big, deep meaning. It means to make something ceremonially clean. To make something ceremonially clean. Now, when I wash dishes, I don't have any kind of ceremony, man. Like, it's throw the soap in there, get the water hot as I can, quick as I can, scrub, 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 throw it over in the tub, and I'm done, right? But there's a big Old, time, Old Testament, New Testament connection right here. The Old Testament law had three parts. Moral, ceremonial, civil. Three parts to the law. There were the ceremonial or clean laws that described how a person could not touch certain things. You cannot come into contact with mildew, with dead bodies, with leprosy, things like that. If you touch that, what happens to you? You become unclean. Okay, That's why they're called the clean laws. You become unclean. And if you do touch those things, there's this really regimented, detailed process that you go through so that you can become clean again and then go into worship and offer sacrifices. You've got to be clean to come before God. So how many of us are clean on our own? None, right? What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 5, I think verse 17? I didn't come to do away with the law. I came to fulfill it. I came to fulfill it. So by perfectly meeting all the demands of the ceremonial law, here's what happened. When he took your sin, you are cleansed of your sin as if you kept all the ceremonial laws for yourself. Everything about that now has been attributed or imputed to you. You're not pure because you kept yourself that way. You're pure because Jesus made you pure. And he took your rags. See, nobody waltzes into heaven stained with sin. Grace purifies and cleanses us of our sin. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? You don't walk in here this morning to worship God on your own merit. You don't walk in here because you're uber talented or you're really wealthy or because you're a person of high standing in the community. No one comes in here to worship an almighty, holy, righteous, majestic God and we brag about ourselves, right? No one. We come in to celebrate Him. Have you ever noticed where your pews are facing? Are we sitting in circles facing each other? Are we here to tell each other how great we are? Are we here to even look at each other 
No, you look at everybody else's, the back of their head if you're way in the back. Right? We're here for the word of God. We're here to sing his praises. We face one way and that is toward Jesus Christ. We belong to him. Grace purifies. And last, grace creates an eagerness in us to do good to those around us. Grace creates an eagerness inside of you as you grow in grace. There's this growing eagerness to do good to people around you. Paul builds on the same idea in Ephesians 2.10. Listen, Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good what? Works. It doesn't say works saves. That's the same place he says grace saves through faith. But we're created in Christ For good works which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. There are good works for you to do if you're still living and breathing on this earth. And you're saved by Jesus Christ. There are good works you are called to do. He's got them ready for you. Well, what makes us ready for those good works? Grace through faith. So as His grace overflows into your life, you know what starts to happen in here? There's this excitability when you hear hey, this group over here in the church is getting together to go serve so-and-so in the community. Or a brand new person comes into church today from the community, and you're thinking, man, I'm going to go meet them and take them out to lunch and get to know them and befriend them. Grace creates this eagerness in you that was not there before to be a blessing. Do you remember Zacchaeus from a couple weeks ago? Remember Zacchaeus? The greediest guy in town who was swindling and cheating his family and friends, became the most generous guy in town. Not because the law did that work in him, but because grace came into his life. Chuck Swindoll says this in his book, Grace Awakening, great book. Chuck Swindoll says, I've noticed that words like mine and keep and ours are not heard in ministries of grace. Neither does a suspicious kind of spirit pervade a place where there is grace. Instead, there is an open-handed generosity. As grace rules and reigns in you individually and us collectively, there's an open-handedness which we say nothing belongs to us. All of it belongs to the king. We're just stewarding it the very best way we can to bless as many people to point them towards Christ so that heaven's kingdom grows. So back to our key question, and I'm done. Why is the gospel more than just a ticket to heaven? Tony Evans says this. Some toys come packaged in a box that says, batteries not, what? Included, right? Every mom and dad has, you know, seen the the present get unwrapped. And they open it up, and you look at it, and the box says those three dreaded words, batteries not, included and you start scrambling you got any double a's you got any c's you got ah (laughs) the stores are closed on christmas that toy is accessible it's in your living room but guess what it doesn't have the power to operate tony evans says that's not how grace is grace is different it comes to us remember grace has appeared grace comes to us evans says with everything already included Grace saves, grace teaches, grace redeems, grace purifies, and grace invigorates you to serve God for other people's good. I'm going to close with a quote from that article I was referencing earlier by Scott Hubbard. 
Hubbard says this. We're coming back to verse 13. He says, for now, grace has appeared. Past, grace has appeared. Training us to say the agonizing no of self-control. But grace's training is not eternal. Grace will train us to renounce ungodliness only as long as we are waiting. Waiting for what? Maybe I should say waiting for whom? Verse 13. For the appearing, there's the word again. For the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hubbard says, one day soon grace's work will be finished and glory will appear. For a moment, we must say the terrible no of self-control. However, forever we will feast on the abundance of God's house. Listen, church, listen. He says this, Jesus is almost here. This life of self-control, as long as it may seem to us, is merely the morning of our wedding day. How quickly did that pass? Just a little longer, he says, and we will see him. And with that blessed hope abiding in our hearts, you and I can say no to sin today. Grace trains you to say no while you wait. Grace waits with you in the waiting room. The gospel is the only golden ticket to get you into the gate. But please hear me. It does so much more than that. So sing, sing, sing all the songs you want to about when the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. And and in Beulah land, all those wonderful songs that may minister to you in a unique way. But just please remember, we're not sitting around on the sidelines watching the game go on. When you're saved, you're saved out of the stands. Worse than that, you're saved from being on the wrong team. And you're saved onto the right team to help move the ball down the field. Grace does that in you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that grace is abundant and free. It is, in it by its very nature, a gift. We don't earn it and we can't earn it. And even if we could earn it for just a sliver of a nanosecond, it would stop being grace. It is is completely unearned, completely undeserved. Oh Lord, I am mindful this morning of my own weakness. And were it not for the grace of God, where in the world would I be this morning? Help me to understand that your grace has something to do in me today, this moment. Help these people, Lord, under the sound of my voice, under the authority of the teaching of your word today, understand that grace has a work to do in them right now. There's something to be said no to today. There's something that needs to be said yes to. There's some good things in some folks' lives this morning that need to be put on hold so better and best things can take priority. There's an understanding maybe in somebody's mind this morning that they have been redeemed from lawlessness and they are not looked upon if they are in Christ, atoned for. If they're in Christ, they're not looked upon, Lord, as under a guilty sentence. If they're a free child of God to climb up in your lap today and just to revel in the grace of God. Lord, there's somebody here today who needs to be purified and cleansed.
of some very injuring thoughts. Of some ugly, slandering, cutting words. Of some secretive actions. Of some lack of self-control. Somebody in this place, Lord, I believe needs to be purified and cleansed today. And walk out with that lightness and that freshness of, wow, this is what it is. This is what it feels like to be clean and close with you again. And there's somebody here today, Lord, who who needs to shake off the apathy and the lethargy and to realize that they were created in Christ for good works. They may not be seen. They may not be heard. They may be in secret with just one other person, but you have ordained good works into our lives. There are many, many, many ways that we could apply the grace of God in our lives. I can't even begin to suggest possibilities. Lord, do your work in me. Let me be an open vessel. Let me hear your voice clearly. Let me forsake sin. And repent of it so I might be close and clean. I pray that over these people this morning. Lord, let us just marvel in your grace. We're getting ready to sing an awesome song. One of my favorites that I find myself singing sometimes. As we marvel at your goodness. Lord, let us not stand back at a distance and just say, oh, how great thou art. Look at, look at the mountains. Look at the sky. Look at the leaves. Those things are great. But your grace appeared to us up close, an epiphany in the flesh to change all of our relationships with self, others, and you. Father, I just ask you like I ask every week for your spirit because of your grace, to do your work, your way in us today. Let us respond in freedom, remembering that we don't have a spirit of fear and timidity, but one of power, love, and self-discipline or sound mind. Speak to us and lead us to respond as you would have us. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.